You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Welcome, everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio. This is episode number one. No, sorry. 503. <laughs> Hard to believe it's actually not been that many. On today's program, we're going to be dealing with a topic we've dealt with in the past and we're likely to deal with in the future. But I, I kind of wanted to do one program by itself, introducing people to what is called the regulative principle of worship. Or hopefully, this will be for you either you uh, you know about the doctrine the regulative principle of worship which is really a, a an outworking of the second commandment and how we approach god either you've been you know you've been raised in reformed churches or you, yes you have come across reformed theology yes you may even say that okay you subscribe to the westminster confession of faith and other things like that or, you know, you could be just interested in Reformed theology. But look, if you're a Christian, I pray by God's grace, this will bless you. And that would help you to grow closer to the Lord. Because the issue of worship is incredibly important. And every Christian should be concerned about worship and what we offer before God in worship. Whether it is pleasing before God. I remember I was uh, I was actually talking to I was talking to an unbeliever actually about this and um, and they seemed to understand what I was talking about it, the the idea of reformed worship came up and I think it was something to do you know why we didn't have instruments in worship and a couple other things and I remember saying giving this analogy to the person uh, you go to a birthday party and you bring a present and you know that their favorite food is, I can't remember the example I used, but say their favorite food is pizza. Well, you want to give that person with that gift what they like. But what if you said, no, no, I would rather give them, I don't know, a DVD of a movie that you know that they hate. And you're not really thinking about the person giving the gift to. You're really saying, what I would like to give the person is this. Now, it wouldn't be very thoughtful, would it, if you went to a birthday party or uh, you're given a present for whatever the occasion is. But what you're thinking about, rather than the person receiving it, you're thinking about, well, the person giving it yourself. And it's, that would be a strange thing to do, wouldn't it? And I'd be like, really? So surely, because we're offering worship to God, worship is about God. That's a radical idea today, isn't it? There isn't, worship isn't about whatever special group that the church wants to exalt above another, it's about God. Now, people 
in Christ are blessed to be in the presence of Almighty God. Absolutely. But it's not about man, primarily. It's about God. So, have you ever asked the question to yourself, what you do and what you classify as worship, is it acceptable before God? How do you know? Is it even possible to know? Should you know? Does the Bible reveal it? Does the Bible give a principle by which we are to follow? And if we go away from that, there are serious consequences for that. For centuries, the church, one element of worship is praise. There's different elements, constituent elements of worship. There's preaching. There's praise. There's prayer. There's the benediction. Sometimes there's uh, the Lord's table. Sometimes there's baptism. Sacraments are part of worship. Vows, oaths, things like that are part of worship. Covenanting, for example, would be part of worship. But in the constituent elements of worship, if we think about praise, and praise, and, and, and each one's different, prayer is a little bit, is a different element to preaching, which is a different element to praise. And if we take praise, the practice for much of the church, not the entirety of the church, of course, but for much of church history, has been the singing of the Psalms a cappella. Now, before we get into the biblical argument for that and the reason for that, why would they have done that? I remember listening to a a sermon by a man, a lot of respect for, but he would not agree with me on exclusive psalmody, giving that only psalms should be sung in the worship. And most people, and this preacher would have would stated in his sermon that Jesus, when he when he you know says in the Bible he sung a hymn, it's most likely referring to Psalm 118. I think a lot of people agree on that. They sung the Psalms. Now I know that people try to find songs in different parts and all this kind of thing, but they sung the Psalms. The early church sung the Psalms. It's actually a long time before you find any instrumentation, any any musical instruments being added into the worship of God. Um, prominent figures would have seen the addition of instruments into the worship of God as Judaizing the church, returning back to temple worship, returning back to the elements which were really part of the ceremonial law, which are really part of the temple worship. And because we don't have temple worship anymore, we need positive commands for these things outside of these things. All that to say, is what we do in worship today commanded by God? Is it acceptable by God? Is it pleasing? Before God. Yes, we're sinners, and it's in and through Jesus Christ, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and our greatest deeds are but filthy rags in and of our own selves. We are sinners, but at the same time, is it pleasing before God?
or can we bring our own ideas, our own innovations, our own inventions, the things that originate in our own minds, and call that worship? I remember years ago, I was a young Christian at the time, and I was talking to a lady, another professing Christian, who she said to me that she painted in worship. Now, I was clearly kind of scratching my head to kind of find any justification for this. I hadn't come to the regular principle of worship by that point. But I remember thinking, and she could see it etched in my face. I was. She asked me how long was I saved. I said, I think I said eight months, and and she said, uh, you'll you'll understand one day." Now the answer was a bit patronizing, but I not yeah I understand it. I just vehemently disagree with it because it's um what's stopping you doing anything and calling it worship. Now, the principle of worship we're going to be looking at, and this is biblical worship, originates in the second commandment, and it's also it's also called the regulative principle of worship to be distinguished from the normative principle of worship. I have had discussions with men who would subscribe, at least verbally, to the Westminster Confession of Faith and other standards similar to that. And once you start getting into the discussion of where does the Bible condemn such and such, or where does, if you're looking for condemnation of a certain practice, like you're not going to find condemnation of the Bible in the Bible explicitly, explicitly, I say, of somebody offering painting as worship, or somebody doing a play as part of worship, or somebody doing some kind of performance as worship. You're not going to find that. But what you're going to find is the principle which leads you to a conclusion that because these things are not commanded in the scriptures, therefore they are forbidden. Therefore, they are condemned by that. The normative principle of worship is a principle of worship followed largely by Lutherans and the Anglican Church historically, although, to be honest, for all intents and purposes, the average guy who, I don't know how widespread, and I'm just trying to be honest here, how many of us who who talk about the regulative principle of worship, really understand the regulative principle of worship. So often I hear people promoting the regulative principle of worship, but they'll still say, where does the Bible condemn this? And that there's always something lingering there. Everything that is on our, take the public worship of God on the Sabbath day. Every single element, constituent element, every single thing that is done in worship to God, it has to be positively commanded by God as revealed in the scriptures. Otherwise, we cannot do it. We may have all our human rationales of how it might help people, 
be that videos in the middle of the service. That's something that we really need to think about. That use of technology. The use of props during preaching. Are we commanded to, oh, well, Jeremiah did it. You're not Jeremiah. You're not Ezekiel. <laughs> you know, yes, if you're Jeremiah and there was, you know, is it prescriptive or descriptive? I can get off on a rant here, but there are so many different things that we say we're regular to principle, but are we? Are we really? It's important that in every element of worship, everything that is offered before God, it is done in a way that God has commanded. And if it is not commanded, we do not invent something in the absence of that. There are things we can do outside of worship that would be more suitable to a kind of a classroom situation, for an example. Sabbath school, you could use, um, perhaps you're doing something in divine simplicity, and you want to talk about multi-parted objects, and you bring in a Lego set. In a Sabbath school, that would be legitimate. In 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 the pulpit, no. In in the preaching, which is part of worship, no. So it, it's important that we realize the difference between life, which is, you could say, a kind of a normative principle. It would have to be condemned in life. Because Sabbath school, whether adult or ch- children, is, that's educational. That's not, that's not offered as worship before God. Um, whereas the service of worship, where we praise, where we, you know, which is singing and prayer, and preaching, the benediction, and and other things sometimes occasionally added, these things are offered to God. Yes, we want to do everything that is honoring to God. Um, We want to offer our bodies as a reasonable service before God. We want to, you know, we want to serve Him in all things, absolutely. But there's a difference between worship and, and life. Now, so let's summarize this down. So, it's worship is very, very important. And if you know most historic formulae or um, things that people will swear to, office holders, be that elders, ministers of the gospel, deacons, or whatever the case may be, many formulas, at least that I've seen, will call on a person. Do you promise through grace to assert, maintain, and conform to the doctrine, worship, discipline, and government of whatever church you are in? Words to that effect. And worship is usually mentioned. There might be some exceptions out there. I hope not. Um, Especially if you go back to older formulas in the the Church of Scotland. I mean, very, very early Church of Scotland, post-1690, just a little bit after 1690 where they condemn the use of innovations in worship. So worship is a very, very important thing. And the Reformed faith in the middle of the 17th century really reached a, at least a historic peak. 
in terms of its understanding of the role and the importance of worship, not just worship, but also government. Government was, church government was seen as incredibly important, something that men, women, and children were willing to die for, because they saw when, when government was corrupted, invariably, usually not too long afterwards, worship was, was corrupted itself, and they were willing to die for their beliefs about worship. That is seen as well um, during the two bishops' wars that take place in 1640, I think it's 1640, 1641, where the Scots fight a mainly defensive war against the, the English crown, King Charles I. Long and short of it is, they're willing to die for their beliefs about worship. And the, the pushing and the, we could say bullying, whatever, you want to, whatever phrase you want to use, that took place of the Scottish church, mainly the Scottish church, because I suppose the English church as well, but far more contrary to the views of the Scottish Kirk. But it led to the, the introducing of the Book of Common Prayer and things like that, that you had led to Scotland covenanting in 1638, the National Covenant, then leading to asserting for the Kirk, the Church, the crown rights of Christ over the Church. And very much, worship and government were seen as massively important. And the worship principle that is taught by the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we're looking in a while, chapter 21, paragraphs 1 and 2 and 5, and other parts as well, Large Catechism states this out when you look at the Second Commandment. Sins against worship, the worship of God are seen as specifically grievous, uh, more serious than others in question 155 of the Westminster Large Catechism. But if you're going to summarize the, the, the biblical, we'll call it biblical worship, or the Reformed worship, or... The regulative principle of worship, it is this. Whatever is not commanded, if something is not commanded, it is forbidden. We'll go through, we're going to go through a few texts in a while, specifically Leviticus chapter 10, but also other parts of the scripture that really, really lay this out. So I'm not just going to be stating this confessional view or reformed view, but I also want to go through a number of texts that clearly teach this principle of worship and how we are to to take care for the purity of God's worship because the Bible is very, very clear that God takes particular care in this area. And whatever we whatever constituent elements we offer Constituent elements again, praise, prayer, reading of the scripture, preaching, benediction, sacraments, solemn odes, etc. 
they are not left up to man's choice or opinion. My opinion doesn't matter. Your opinion doesn't matter. The only opinion that matters when it comes to God and his worship is God's opinion, God's will, God's revealed will. And it is regulated by that. Now, there are other elements, you know, there are things to do with worship that, you know, what, you know, morning and evening worship, that's, that's a light of nature issue. There's patterns in the scriptures as well of morning and evening sacrifices and things like that. So there are patterns laid down for when, but the exact time of the service, whether you have 11 o'clock service or 12 o'clock service or whatever the case may be, that is kind of left up to the light of nature and general wisdom is to guide that. And you pick, you know, elders led by the grace of God really should be guided along by that. It says in the Westminster Directory of Public Worship, uh, I'd venture to say a document that's largely neglected. Uh, it says of the singing, of singing of psalms, it is the duty of Christians to praise God publicly by singing psalms together in the congregation and also privately in the family. So one of the constituent elements written about the director of public worship lays out, you know, again, this is all about public worship. Public worship is regulated one way and private worship in the home is different, somewhat different, um, as in private worship, you're not going to have preaching, but in but you'll be, be led by the you know father, or the father's not there, the mother, or something like that. Um, but in public worship, it's it is the duty of Christians to praise God publicly by singing psalms together in the congregation and also privately in the family. So, and and the people of God are one. The singing is not just for a section of certain people. The children are part of... If we believe the Westminster Standards, the promise is unto you and unto your children. So God promises to be a God unto you and unto... If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's a God unto you and unto your children who are part externally at least. We don't know the states of heart, especially when they're very young. But externally they are holy. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. So the, there's all these things, you know, when we think of praise, this is all to be done as one body before God. Prayer. L- yes, led by the minister, but it's, you know, the ministers say, we call it, you know, it's we, it's collectively. It's all as one body praying. The reading of the word is not just the one man who is minister of words are, I mean, reading out the word of God, reading is part of the script, you know, worship as well, clearly commanded in the word of God. But that is for, and people are being blessed by that under the reading of the word of God. And that's, and it's all together again, collectively. The preaching of the word is all to be done collectively. It's one of the biggest mistakes we made during the, Oh, during 2020 and all that mess with the virus and all that kind of thing. 
Preaching is not one man in front of a camera. Yeah, I made that mistake too, I know. It is all of us to get, yeah, there's one man who's specifically preaching, but it is really the, the people of God listening to God collectively as one. There's no such thing as gathering electronically. It is a myth. It is an absolute... We are kidding ourselves. We're commanded to meet together. Now, in extraordinary circumstances, I know I'm not like... There's going to be certain meetings that can be done on Zoom and various different things, but not the Sabbath service or worship. And I would state keep, keep the Zoom meetings and all that kind of stuff to a minimum. Meet in public, meet meet person to person. I'm not against technology sparingly, but you haven't, like when I ring up my parents who live down in Cork, and that's about five hours drive away from here, and every time I'm talking to them on on, on Zoom or WhatsApp or whatever the on the phone, I don't I don't because I see them on video. I don't think ah oh, I just visited Cork. I didn't. I was still in Northern Ireland, which is at the opposite end of the island. So let's let's really think about the regular principle is f- we're all falling short. Many of you say, oh, I believe in the regular principle of worship, but do we apply it? And, you know, we may come to conviction about it. We may come to understand it better. We may come to, and we think, oh, I'm really following. I would challenge us all to really examine, is everything that we're doing in the church commanded by God? In terms of worship now. In terms of worship, I'm not talking about, I don't know, there's other things, you know, the color, something silly like the color of paint on the walls and something like that. I mean, keep the building as simple as possible, sure, but I digress. The benediction, that's, you can look to passages at the end of Numbers 6. Um, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. Um, there's also benedictions at the end of Paul's letters. At the end of Second Corinthians is a, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with you all. What's that effect? I think that's the end of 2 Corinthians. And the sacraments, that's clearly commanded by God. And we're to do it as God has commanded. I think most people are probably with me on that. I think sacraments are something that rightfully so people take seriously. We don't all agree on how that exactly plays out, but at least let's not just think we can just make it up as we go along. Please don't go along with the current church which is kind of dangerously going in that direction and also vows we see these biblical examples of vows being taken in worship commanded before god and things like that ezra nehemiah and other places as well so and look there are things that over time there are things, a couple of years ago, I thought, that's okay. Maybe because I had a bit more of a slightly elastic view of certain of these constituent elements and looking back saying, mm, that's that's acceptable. And looking back, no. No, that's not acceptable. And um, when we're preaching, for example, the preaching of the word of God, that's to the entire congregation. 
there's not a a subsection message, say for children, for five minutes. There's not a whatever video stuck on the background. None of these things are commanded by God. I would say don't use it. Definitely don't. I, I, it's not that I wouldn't say don't use an overhead projector and all these kind of things during preaching because preaching is to be auditory. It is, yeah, okay, the preacher uses his body, communicates with certain gestures he uses, and maybe a preacher will smile. Over, you know, we communicate with our whole body as well. I, I understand that. And we communicate with how we look at people in the eye, and there's there's that kind of thing as well. But preaching is word-based. Don't turn it into a multimedia show because it hasn't been commanded by God. We must, because if we go against God's revealed will, we're really saying, well, our ideas are better. And this is the big danger with a lot of what we do in modern worship. Now, Let's go through, um, now, there are, how, how we're about half an hour into it already, so I'm probably not going to get it. For those who are looking for, uh, we'll see, we might be able to go through these things, but just in case I can't go through, the, don't have the time within the hour to look at everything that I want to. I want to spend most of my time on scripture, actually, and, but... You can look at Westminster Confession, uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism, sorry. Questions 107 to 110 for more reading on this. But as also, you can read chapter 21 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And um, question 151 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. It's actually, sorry, I said a question 155 before. It's actually question 131. Of the Westminster Larger Catechism takes sins against God's worship very seriously so um this is just more from a confessional point of view but perhaps you haven't come to a point of where i actually came to the conviction of the regular principle before before coming to the the westminster confession of faith at all so the question is really is it commanded by god and if it's not commanded by god we cannot do it. Now let's see if we can find this in the scripture, because the most important thing is that we're biblical, isn't it? That it is the word of God that we are following. Can we find this principle in the scriptures? We're going to spend the rest of our program mainly going through Leviticus chapter 10. I'm just going to close down something here. So we're going to spend... We're going to start off with... Leviticus chapter 10. And in Leviticus chapter 10, this is just after a section in Leviticus chapter 9 where the fire came out before the Lord and consumed the altar, the burnt offering and the fat, which then all the people saw. They shouted and fell on their faces. So, And they were given the instructions and what they were to do. The offerings made for Aaron himself and for the people. Aaron offers them and first for himself and afterwards for the people. And and Moses and Aaron bless the people and then fire comes down from heaven upon the altar. 
Then we come to Leviticus chapter 10. Now, let's not be Marcionites when it comes to this. Let's not be those who will cut off the Old Testament and think, well, that's the Old Testament. That is a heretical view. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. All scripture. Everything, literally, the Greek is everything written is breathed out by God and is profitable for, for, for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped and thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Everything is for, and we, and we need to be reading all of the scriptures. We need to be not just reading the New Testament. When I, when I became a Christian first, I started reading the Gospels. And okay, not a terrible place to start. Of course not. But if you're a new believer, read Genesis, how God made the earth. Read Exodus, how God redeemed his people. Read Leviticus, how God cleanses his people. It's a ceremonial picture, you know, of course, and they're, they're carrying out all these rituals, which is really a picture of the gospel. Uh, numbers, how, how he brings his people through the wilderness. Deuteronomy, a lot of Deuteronomy is... Moses on the other side of the Jordan before they pass over the Jordan into the promised land. But really learning about the goodness of God, the heavenly Canaan, when we think we look at Canaan and the land of milk and honey, think about the our own heavenly Canaan that has to come. And as we pass through the wilderness of this life, having been rescued from spiritual Egypt and and that cruel taskmaster that is sin. But read the entirety of the scriptures and you're going to notice something if you read through the prophets and I mean I don't think there's too much objection to reading Psalms and Proverbs rightly so because we need those we need all scripture when you look at the prof- prophets, most like the prophets are really calling people back to repentance. They have fallen away from a standard. They've fallen away from the law of God. They've fallen away very, very specifically from the from the law of Moses. And the the prophets were largely calling the people of God back to the law of Moses. Now, does since then the ceremonial law has you know has been the the substance of Christ has come, and so no longer are we doing all these rituals, but we still read about them, and we still there's pictures of the gospel being set before our you could say our eyes to an extent that show us of the redemption of Christ who is that lamb that would come that would take away the sin of the world, who is that innocent victim who would take away the sin of his people, 
who is the points towards the Christ who would bear the sins of his people on the breastplate. Uh, the twelve tribes being pictured there of the high priest. And here we have a picture. When I say picture, I don't mean that this is symbolic. No, this actually happened. (laughs) But, But God comes down and meets with his people. That's what we see at the end of Leviticus chapter 9. God comes down showing them openly that he meets with his people. It's not poetic language. The blessed presence of God is there with the people of God on the Sabbath day worship service. So what we do in the Holy of Holies is vitally Important, and this is the end of Leviticus chapter 9, verse 23. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. That's when it was pleasing before God. It was according to his revealed will. But what happens when things go wrong? When Moses and Aaron, they come out and bless the people. God comes among his people and blesses them. But what happens when we in worship, as the people of Almighty God, go away from what God has commanded. What happens? It doesn't tend to go too well. In Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1, 2, and 3, probably one of the clearest texts for teaching the regulative principle of worship. And we read, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censure and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said unto Aaron, This is it. That the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Do you see how important it is that we do not offer before God what he does not command? Why did Nadab and the Bihu, sons of Aaron, Part of priestly line. Why was their offering offensive before God? Why did it bring on the wrath of God? Why did the fire consume them rather than their offering as had previously happened? It tells us in verse 1. 
It was strange fire. Not because there was hysteria. You know, we often think of Strange Fire. And there's that very good... It's a good book, by the way. John MacArthur wrote a book called Strange Fire. Read it. Good book. I like it. Um, But it's not just a charismatic movement that's guilty of Strange Fire. There's many Reformed churches. They may be Calvinistic, good preachers. But there's elements of Strange Fire in our midst. I'm guilty in the past, of offering things that have not been commanded by God in worship. Why did he offer strange fire? Why was it strange fire? Or profane fire, or however you want to, there's different ways of rendering it. Something different. Basically, the offering of incense was different. Something was different. We're not told what was different, and we're not told the motivation. There's no sense in which we're given the sense of Nadab and Abihu. They're plotting. They're in a in a smoke-filled room and trying to figure out how they're going to overthrow things. But whatever the case was, what was offered by Nadab and Abihu was different. It was not what was commanded. And so what happened, they died by fire. And if God kills people before all, when there's a specific sin, we should not take that sin lightly. I hope I hope we all agree on that. Regardless of our view, is at this point that we we say to her, yeah, yeah, <laughs> if if they died. For breaking this principle, we should take it seriously. God takes his honor seriously. It is tied within his honor, verse 3. And Moses said unto Aaron, This is that what the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh unto me. And before all the people, I will be glorified in God held. And, and sorry, and Aaron held his peace. There are other parts of the Bible that teach this principle that what is not commanded is forbidden. There's another part uh, in Jeremiah 7. I'm going to read from Jeremiah 7, verses 29, 30, and 31. Cut off thine hair, O Jerusalem, and cast it away, and take up a lamentation on high places. For the Lord hath rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, saith the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name, to pollute it. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the sun in Hinnon, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. Now, I don't know about you, but do you notice anything there? There's a couple of things. It talks about, first of all, think how are things going wrong? They've done evil in the sight of the Lord. The abomination is brought into the house of God. It pollutes the house of God. Bringing something that is not. 
holy unto the Lord. And they built the high places to burn, to burn. And this is where hopefully we would go, wow, they would burn their sons and their daughters. Basically, they were offer, they were copying the, the pagan nations around them, but to offer their own children to the fire. Now, is the rationale here given, wow, this is, you know, how would you even think about something? This is horrible. This is going, going too far. We need to reverse the trend. No, the, the, the rationale given, and this is sufficient reason, and shows why it's evil to offer their sons and their daughters or children in the fire before a false god, or whatever the case may be, which I commanded them not. Same, same idea, same principle, the regular principle of worship, which I have commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. I never... Why is that commanded? Why is that evil? Why is that abomination? Why the high hell? Why are they all wrong? Why? Have you ever thought, why is this specific thing wrong? Why is it wrong to bring that thing into the temple? Why, why, why? God did not command it. Do you see this? It is only acceptable if God has commanded it. Jeremiah 19 and verse 5. They have built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal, which I commanded not, nor spake it, neither came it into my mind. Do you see the reason given? The heinousness of it, the evil of it, I did not command it, it is wicked. And one of the most egregious examples that will be given of burning your own children in offering to God. And I think most people would say, well, then, yeah, that's, that's false worship. But it's false worship, not because it makes us squeamish. It brings us, it is false worship. Well, they were, again, learn not the way of the heathen. This is what they were doing. We learn our we learn a lot of things from the, the heathen around us. We can see some of the LGBT sins, even horrible things that wouldn't have been in the church 50 years ago, much more so today, which I commanded them not. So we've got to really get this principle that if God has not commanded it, it is sinful and wrong and grievous to do so because God has not commanded it. God has not required it. God has not looked for it. He is not pleased by it at all. In Jeremiah 32, and verse 35, And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire unto Molech, which I commanded them not. Neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Again, I commanded them not. And here, there's the death of Nadab and Abihu. Returning back to Leviticus chapter 10, and Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Oziel, 
the uncle of Aaron, and said unto them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said unto Aaron, and unto, can, can you imagine that? These two dead bodies being carried from before the sanctuary out of the camp. And Moses said unto Aaron, remember these are, remember these, like, these are Aaron's children. Actually, as well, I, I preached on this. You, you could find this actually on Sermon Audio and also on YouTube, BitChute as well. I did preach on this, but I'm going to be, the detail would be different because the sermon is different to, obviously different to a podcast. I hope, <laughs> I hope people understand that. Um, so I'm going to be going into probably more different kind of detail in this. But if you want more on that, I did actually preach on it. Um last March, I think it was, and uh, Purity Worship is called Leviticus chapter 10, so if you want more beyond this program, you can listen to that as well. So, it says, verse 6, And Moses said unto Aaron, and unto Eleazar, and unto Ithamar, the sons, his sons, Uncover not your heads, neither rent your clothes, lest ye die. Unless wrath come upon all the people, but let your brethren and your whole house of Israel bewail the burning which the Lord hath kindled. Do you see what it's saying there in verse 6? Do not uncover your heads. Do not re- Don't weep. Don't even mourn for them. Don't complain about what God has done. If you're going to be saddened about anything in the midst of this. This is how serious it is, the worship of God. Bewail and mourn the the violation of the Lord's worship. Bewail the burning which the Lord hath kindled. Bewail that the Lord has been displeased. But we need, need to be a boy who done. Do not, I, I suppose almost the sense of it is this, do not be tempted into complaining against the Lord. God has done what is right. Native and Abihu have done something evil and wicked. Now, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all in these areas. And when we identify these areas, we ought to repent and learn from them and apply what we have learned to our own worship of God. God is merciful, long-suffering, kind towards sinners such as us. But we have to really recognize that God makes it very clear, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Verse 3. If we're going to be sad about anything, and this is what is being said, unto Aaron and unto Eleazar, and unto Ithamar, his sons. This is his family. These are the... Your family members are dead before you. Been carried out. If you're going to bewail anything, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. See, do you see what he's saying? Don't... I suppose it's almost a sense of don't complain. 
about what God has done. And he shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did it according to the word of Moses. So Moses said, Moses is the man, is the man of God. He is speaking um, God's message to the people. He's God's prophet. And he's warning them not to go out of the door of the tabernacle, lest ye die. Don't, in maybe in the feeling of remorse or mourning or whatever, add sin to sin. Don't keep the law of God as been revealed unto you, and this is for the anointing oil. The anointing oil is upon you. If you look at, uh, I'm not going to go into everything here, but basically keep, keep the law as has been revealed to you. In Leviticus chapter 8, verse 2, take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bullock for the sin offering and the two rams and a basket of unleavened bread. So it's upon you. Do, and, and they did according to the word of Moses. And they did, like Moses was the instrument used by God to, to deliver his message. Put it another way, they followed God's word. Or, they, or if they went outside of that, more would die. This is how serious it was in coming into the presence of Almighty God, the blessed presence of Almighty God. But it would be the wrath of Almighty God. That's how serious this is. In verse 8, the Lord spake unto Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Now, just pausing there for a second, it seems like there might have been, a, perhaps, there might have been some kind of flippancy. Maybe there was a, a lack of reverence going into the into the the sanctuary of God. Perhaps there was maybe there was people drinking too much or whatever the case may be. But it, how can we think about this for ourselves? There needs to be a sobriety, a sobriety when coming into the presence of Almighty God. Now we might think, well, okay, how is how is that? How can we take that for ourselves? The Directory of Public Worship has something very, very helpful that really all churches should follow. There should be a stilling of the heart of the people before we come into the presence of Almighty God. It's, I'll just see if I can find it there in the Directory of Public Worship. It says, this is on of, of the assembling of the congregation and their behavior in the public worship of God. When the congregation is to meet for public worship, the people, having prepared their hearts thereunto, ought to come and join therein, not absenting themselves in the public ordinances through negligence or upon pretenses, pretense of private meetings. Let all enter the assembly, not irreverently, 
but in a grave and seeming manner, that their seats are places without adoration or bowing themselves toward one another. The congregation being assembled, the minister, after solemn calling to, on them to the worshipping of the great name of God, is to begin with prayer. So I'm trying to... There is a... Yeah, I think that's the point, really, you know, to have a moment of stilling their hearts. I think sometimes we can come into worship and everybody's chatting and all this kind of thing. Well, really, we should be coming in in a grave. That's just kind of a serious or a solemn manner, taking their seats in places of adoration and bowing themselves toward one another, one place or other. So it's important that we have the right um, attitude in reverence and humility before God. And a sobriety. This should be a sobriety, not a... It, it shouldn't be... Worship shouldn't be a circus. Let's put it like that. And there should be a sobriety there. And I think that's what this, it's conveying as well. In verse 10, it says this in Leviticus chapter 10, and that you may put a difference between the holy and the unholy and between the unclean and clean. When we, th- when we read this, this is not like about, you know, we think of unholy, we think of something evil and good. It's not like that, per se. It's what's set apart from what is not set apart. And the public worship of God is set apart from other things And that's what it's supposed to teach. The, the leadership and the, the actions of the congregation and other things like that are to put a difference between the holy and the unholy. The way we behave in public worship is not going to be the same way we're going to behave when we're chatting in the car park afterwards, is it? Nor should it be. So we need to have a serious... When we're, when we're in the presence of Almighty God, we need to have a certain uh, sobriety and seriousness about ourselves. To put a difference between the holy, that's what's set apart, and the unholy, that's what's not set apart. For example, take uh, the Lord's Supper, we have bread and wine. Um, the, the bread and wine are set apart for sacramental use. They are set apart, they are holy. Before that, they were just common bread and common wine um, used for common usage, for, you know, for, for the belly and for, for general use. But then afterwards, in in the service of worship, they are set apart. They are, before you could say, quote-unquote, unholy, or not set apart. Now they are set apart in the worship of God for a specific use in the worship of God. Verse 11, that you may teach the children of Israel in all the statutes, which the Lord hath spoken unto them by the hand of Moses. This is to be taught unto the people. It's to be modeled to the people. It's to be modeled to our children. The difference between the public worship of God and the worship of God being in the presence of God and when we're not. And, and a distinction is to be made still to this day. We may not be entering in with incense and with fire and things like that, but we're still coming into the presence of a God who meets with his people. Verse 12, and Moses spake 
unto Aaron and unto Eleazar and unto Ithamar, his sons that were left, take the meat offering that remaineth of the offerings of the Lord made by fire and eat it without leaven beside the altar, for it is most holy. So it says unto Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons that were left, and the other sons are dead, you take the meat offering that remaineth of the offerings of the Lord made by fire and eat it without leaven beside the altar for it is most holy. Again, leaven wasn't always a picture of sin, but a lot of times it was because leaven was something that spread. Sometimes leaven was a picture of the, the doctrine of the, the Sadducees, Pharisees, Herod. Sometimes it was a, a picture of sin. Sometimes... There was one time in one of the parables, it's used as a picture of the kingdom of God because it's spread everywhere and, uh, and grows. So leaven is something that spreads. It's yeast, fermented dough. Um, so So there's to eat food, holy food. And when we come into the presence of Almighty God, the, the food that we receive is spiritual. It is the word of God itself, and it nourishes the soul. And it is without any spiritual leaven. It is without sin. It is pure. Verse 13, And ye shall eat it in the holy place, because it is thy Jew and thy son's Jew, of the sacrifice the Lord made by fire, for so I, I am commanded. Again, look, we do this in worship, why I'm commanded. And, and notice this, ye shall eat it in the holy place. You're being fed. You're being strengthened. Have you ever not eaten for a long time? Worship is not about us. But we... It's about God. But we get to be blessed in the presence of Almighty God, who it's all about. And we get to be fed, strengthened, encouraged, comforted by the God who doesn't owe us anything. He's promised it through Christ, covenantally, sovereignly, for he, of his own good pleasure, from eternity past, to those in Jesus Christ, But we get to be blessed by being in his presence. So it's not all like, hey, you can't do this, you can't do this. No, we get to meet with God. But let us do so when we meet with God and seeing that in the infinite God who is without beginning, without end, without shadow of turning, who is simple, pure, simple in terms of he's without parts, either physical or metaphysical. And... He is the God we are so blessed to be in the presence of. Why would we not want to offer him what he wants to be offered? Why wouldn't we want to do that? It doesn't make any sense. If if we start having worship, I want this, I want this. Your worship is about you. Worship is not about the people. There. It's not about our wants. It's not about what the the children want to keep them entertained throughout the service. It's not about any group in the church. It doesn't matter. What matters, well, hopefully people will come to love 
biblical worship and be changed and conformed and be blessed by it, but it's about God, about being, and we get the wonderful blessing of being fed by God with unleavened bread. I'm talking spiritually now, of course, but these are all pictures of the blessing that we get in worship. Verse 14, and the wave breast and the the heave shoulder shall ye eat in the clean place. It is a clean place. Thou and thy sons and thy daughters with thee, for they be thy due, and thy sons due, which are given out of the sacrifices of peace offerings of the children of Israel. This is a this we're blessed we're fed in a in a way we're going to be fed in a way that will never be fed even in a private worship the public worship of God we've become so individualistic so atomat, atomatized or you know basically individuals this hyper individualism as we've seen within the church we 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 almost we view far more highly, and yes, we should view highly private worship. We should. We're praying alone before God and all this kind of thing. Absolutely. But there's a special way that God meets with his people that does not happen even in family worship, even in private worship, as wonderful as those things are. as special as those things are. We have to see that to come into the presence of Almighty God in public worship is a wonderful privilege. It's a wonderful blessing. It strengthens. It is a place of holiness. How are we led into the the tabernacle of God? How are we led into his holy hill? Why? Why do we have that great blessing? By grace alone. And surely when we're doing so, we come with what is pleasing before him. We come with what God wants. We come with the praises of Almighty God. If we come with our own inventions, what does God think of our own invention? Something that originates in the heart of man, something that originates in our heart, it will invariably lead to idolatry because it will be according to what? Our own imagination. Our own understanding of God. We will corrupt our notion of God. The first commandment is about the God we worship. The second commandment is about how we approach that God we worship in worship. Now, And again, look at this at the end of, uh, even at the end of verse 15. The heave shoulder and the wave breast shall they bring with the offering made by fire of the fat to wave it for a wave offering before the Lord and it shall be thine 
and thy sons with thee. Did you see that? The covenantal, it should be thine, and thy sons with thee by a statute forever as the Lord hath commanded. Look, as the Lord hath commanded. Verse 16, And Moses diligently sought the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burnt. So the goat of sin offering, and behold, it was burnt. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar. These are the two other sons who are still surviving at this point, the sons of Aaron, which were left alive, saying, Wherefore have ye not eaten the sin offering in the holy place, seeing it is most holy? And God had given it to, to you, you to bear the iniquity of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the, the Lord. It's almost like Moses is saying, Look, guys, do you do you see what has happened at this moment in time? Your your brothers have died in offering strange fire, departing from what the Lord has commanded in worship, in coming into the Holy of Holies. Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the holy place? Why have you done something else, something different to that? God hath given it to you to bear the iniquity. Verse 18, Moses says, Behold, the blood of it was not brought in within the holy place. You shall indeed have eaten it in the holy place as I commanded. Again, it's like, as I commanded, as I commanded, you should have done this, you should have... And Moses is rightfully angry. There is, not all anger is sinful. If it is because of sin, there's a righteous anger. Verse 19, and Moses said unto and Aaron said unto Moses, Behold, this day have they offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, then it should have been accepted in the sight of the Lord. When Moses heard that, he was content. So we'll go over that again. And Aaron said unto Moses, Behold, this day have they offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things as have fallen me. But if I have eaten the sin offering today, and should it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? All that to say, we need, when we come into the presence of Almighty God in worship, if it is something we are offering before God in praise, in prayer, it ought to be according to God's will. If God has told us to do it a certain way, whatever that thing is, we ought not to go either against that or invent something new or something different. Because if we do do so, if we invent something different, if we depart from what is pleasing before God rather than the fire coming down and consuming the offering what will happen well the wrath of God was poured out upon Nadab and Abihu and they died it's a serious serious thing Something we should not play games with. Yes, God is merciful, and you'll. And I know a lot of good churches, a lot of good preachers. I mean, um, you know, and they're learning; they're going in the right direction, 
and may may not have fully wrapped their minds around the regulative principle of worship. But let us learn. Do, Do not, if you've heard this for the first time today, do not ignore this. And you, you may be listening to this, and you you might be a minister, you might not be, or whatever the case may be, you just say, well, if I come to this conviction, this is going to cause problems for me. It may well. It may well. It cost the covenanters in the 17th century. It cost them their lives. It cost them position. Many of them were removed from their pulpit for many years. So following the Lord, seeking what is pleasing before Him, will cost you in this world. It will. I'm not going to pretend that it won't. And this is why people, generally speaking, aren't interested. See, we can be very critical about, say, people in leadership who won't look into various different things. There's a reason. Because a lot of people in leadership know, if well, if I come to this conviction about this different thing, that is going to make life horrible for me. Most likely. Maybe it doesn't, maybe it won't. But in Psalm 87, verse 2, it says, The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. See the picture there, the, the gates of Zion, uh, the place of the public worship of God, you know, where, where the, the, the special blessing comes. Now, he loves the dwellings of Jacob. He loves the individual homes. He loves all that kind of thing. But there's a, there's a special blessing to be in the presence of Almighty God. In his presence. Now, though there's a lot of people who will listen to this program, or maybe don't listen to this program, but who will be Westminster Confession of Faith. This principle is not just, yeah, it's taught in the scriptures, of course, is, and you know, there's a lot of other passages that could be laid out. But this is also taught in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Anybody who, which lived out really is, well, we don't have we don't have the liberty to write our own hymns we don't have the liberty to add any instruments because the temple has been removed we don't have the liberty to bring in extra things beyond the preaching of the word we preach from the word don't bring in bells and whistles of any description um Wrote prayers that that's bringing in something that is foreign to the commandment of God. It doesn't give you any prescribed prayer to follow. Um, Jesus said when he was teaching his disciples, "Pray in this manner." He didn't say pray exactly these words or anything like that. So we're we're to follow God in those things. In in the Lord's Supper, we're to follow God and use bread. And the cup, you use wine. A lot of churches have gone away from that. Uh, this pl- it is certainly wine. The wine has been used throughout the Bible to, for a picture that re- makes the heart rejoice. 
Um, that picture certainly doesn't work for grape juice, but I digress. Anyway, so, and let's look at, at chapter 21 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're going to be covering this later when I do go, Lord willing, get through the, um, I plan to, in the program, once the larger catechism programs are, 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 are completed, I plan then, Lord willing, to be able to do a series of programs on the Westminster Confession of Faith, starting in chapter one, going all the way to the end. Um, so I'll go through that in more detail when that happens. Well, it'll be a long time before we get to chapter 21. But in chapter 21, it says this. Just to show that the Confession of Faith clearly teaches just what I've been talking about. The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshipping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will, and that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So anything not commanded is forbidden. Is forbidden. Give some of the constituent elements allowed in worship. Paragraph 5 says the reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching, the conscible hearing of the word. No, it says conscible hearing, thinking when people are listening, is obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing psalms. Psalm singing is there in this in the confession of faith with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. Beside religious oaths, vows, solemn fastings, and thanksgiving upon special occasions that are in there several times and occasions to be used in a holy and religious matter manner. It says in paragraph 6, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel either tied to or made more acceptable in any way which is performed or towards what is directed, but it's not, it's not tied to a specific location like it was in the Old Testament. But God is to be worshipped everywhere, in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily. Um, and, and in secret by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God by his word providence call, calleth thereunto. And then it also talks about there's other things that are furnished in the worship of God directed by the light of nature. You know, how, how long do we spend worshiping? That kind of thing. By the light of nature. The light of nature is revealed from nature. But 
the light of nature is revealed by God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Um, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven above. Um, Romans, was it Romans chapter 1 verse 17? That's why men are without excuse. So that's the light of nature. So you've got the, the book of nature and the book of scripture. I think we often forget that. God is, in his attributes, his invisible attributes are actually revealed in creation as well. That's again, Romans chapter 1. I think it's verse 20 of Romans chapter 1. As it is the law of nature, this is paragraph 7 of chapter 21, that in general, a due portion of time to be set apart for the worship of God, so in his word, by a positive, moral, perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he hath peculiarly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed unto the first day of the week. which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and to be continued to the end of the, end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. So there are things, circumstances in worship, which are guided by the light of nature. Again, you can think of certain things, like, I don't know, length of preaching, how, how long the service is, all that kind of thing. Now, there's a general wisdom, you know, you don't, you know, if people are used to, I, I, I don't think you should be down to the minute or anything like that, but if people are used to like an hour long service, perhaps maybe don't jump from there to an hour and a half. But we grow. And if we love God, we want to spend more time with God. So, for example, in your private worship, you might start off, you know, 10, 15 minutes a day, maybe spend a little bit longer and a little bit longer. And you spend more time with God and more time with God. And, but there's general principles that you apply there and that you learn from. Hopefully that's been a blessing to you. If we just think about anything else, look, I, I know of churches, especially, I know of churches that are will talk about the regulative principle. The one mistake I think we make, whether that's the Reformed Presbyterian Church, whether that's here in Ireland or in Scotland or in North America, there's also the Canadian church that's newly formed or in Japan, all exclusively psalm singing. There are some psalm singing churches, I think, within the OPC, PCA, the United Reformed Church. You're going to get little pockets of church uh, churches that believe exclusive exclusive psalmody. Okay, praise God, <laughs> praise God for that. Um, you're, you, every now and again, in a fairly liberal denomination, you'll even find a church that's completely off the beaten track and will sing exclusively psalms. Acapella, based upon the regulative principle of worship. And I, I'm thankful for that. Also, the free, uh, the free Church of Scotland continuing believe in the regulative principle of worship and also um, 
Excuse us, Omni. The, the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland, not to be not to be mistaken with uh, Ian Paisley's Paisley's with the Lord now, but not to be mis- mis- mistaken with the Ulster Free Presbyterians, and a lot of them are in America as well. So, a lot. but the the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland would also be a cappella singing of the Psalms exclusively. Sixteen fifty Psalter will be used. I'm trying to. I'm trying not to leave anybody out here, but I might have. Um, I'm not trying to. Crit- I praise God for any of the promotion that I see with regards to the regulative principle. I praise God for anybody promoting psalm singing. I praise God for anybody promoting, you know, the acapella singing and all these things. I praise God for it. But we, I just think we're, we're, the way we put it forward, we'll say, okay, we believe in the regular principle of worship. We only sing the Psalms. No instrumentation. And that's it. And the danger is this, especially if you come from outside, like I have. I, I, I didn't grow up in the Reformed faith. I was raised Roman Catholic. I was an atheist for six years. And I was in Armenian churches for a couple of years before I eventually came to Reformed faith, and I was in Baptist churches. So I didn't come from this background. The danger is a person coming in may just think that it's the regulative principle of psalm singing or the regulative principle of praise. And where we get extremely strict about is the psalm singing. Now, we should be strict, for want of a better term. Only the psalms are to be sung, and it's no instrumentation is allowed. Because it's not commanded in the word. But we've got to use that principle in prayer. We've got to use that principle in preaching. We've got to use that principle in the reading of the word. Who's allowed to read the word of God? Mm, that's an interesting one. It's not every Tom, Dick, and Harry. Um, who's allowed to preach? Who's allowed to administer the sacraments, etc., and so on? How are the sacraments to be administered? On and on and on. The regulative principle is for every constituent element of worship. When I came into the regulative principle, I focused pretty much exclusively on one element. Can you guess what it was? Psalm singing. And also a little bit, I, I, there's a program from years ago um, on Holy Days. I think I was interviewing David Silversides, David Silversides, who's now um, with the Lord. And uh, I encourage you to check that out. One of the reasons I did this program as well, because that program, I think the two programs that I've done on it, one was on psalmody, one was on Holy Days and applying the regulative principle to that. But it was, I, I'm criticizing myself more than anything that here's a tool for cleaning things up okay there's holy days everywhere you know christmas easter how do we get rid of it (laughs) and sometimes you can come across that that way or you know hymns and music and instruments and drums and all these kind of things it's a big mess how do we clean it up oh the regular principle it's very attractive okay but it's to apply to all worship 
I'll give you one example. One more example before we finish off. This is this program's gone way longer than expected. In the public prayer of God, who's allowed to lead it? If there's a mixed group, regardless of whether it's formal, informal, or anything else, can women lead? Now, you might be saying, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about, are you sure? Now, hopefully you're kind of thinking, well, generally it's male leadership. The Bible describes male leadership. Is there a passage that we could say, maybe point towards that would say, okay, men are to lead in the public prayer of God. Again, regardless of what type of, I'm talking about, public, I'm not talking about private in a home now, or family worship, or something like that. Who is allowed to lead in prayer? Is it open to everybody? It's not. And I just think we've got to go through a lot of our denominations, some more than others, some are healthier than others, but I think a lot of us, sometimes we've inherited good things, we're doing the right things, but we don't know why we're doing them. And I think we all, I think the pandemic a couple of years ago, emphasized how we're, we may have difficulties, but we need to go through each element again and ask ourselves questions. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, this is just one example. I will therefore that men, and the word in Greek is very, very clear that it's a male, pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Makes it even clearer than verse 9. In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, shamefacedness and sobriety, with broided hair or gold apparels or costly array. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. And there's other parts of the scripture you could look at to, to show that it, Prayer is to be led by um, a man in any public prayer. This has far-reaching implications, and I'm I'm not saying that I'm I'm there. I'm not. I'm still studying things. I pray with God's grace, growing. But do we want to, I know I know. I hear a lot of Reformed people, they want to get back to Second Reformation attainments. They want to get back to where the Westminster Confession of Faith divines war. Those hard-fought battles and get back to that position of where that that peak of it, of, of a, you could just say achievement, again, it was all by God's grace, it was all by the Spirit of God, anything that was good about it. But we want to get back there, don't we? Many of us do. How do we get back there as a Reformed Church across the world, regardless of what nation we're in? We've got to take worship seriously again and ask the question, the very important question, is God pleased with what I am offering before him? Does that matter? Does it even matter to us? Or do we think about, well, if we do this or we stop doing whatever is not commanded by God, well, we may lose people. Friends, if we love God, 
the worship we wish to offer before him should it not be something pleasing in his sight pray this has been a blessing to you any questions Megiddo Radio that's M-E-G-I-D-D-O Radio at gmail.com this has been Paul Flynn talk to you again next week